The following is a production of the Event Safety Alliance. Welcome back to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Steve Edelman. This week, we're going to continue a conversation that we started a couple of weeks ago about severe weather planning and preparedness. Specifically for this podcast, we're going to discuss one of the most important tools for weather planning and preparedness, which is the trigger chart. Trigger chart is a term that you may have heard. Hopefully, you've seen trigger charts. In this podcast, we're going to specifically discuss what goes into one? How do you decide what weather issues are your weather issues? And how do you determine what are the criteria by which you decide for your own purposes, this weather circumstance is sufficient so that we should be on warning, so that we should be careful. And this weather circumstance is one which causes us to say, absent something else, we're going to hold the show because we want to protect people and we don't want either temporary or permanent objects to fall on people. So for this event safety podcast, we have reassembled the same people as for the last one, and we're going to continue the conversation, this time specifically focused on trigger charts. So for today's event safety podcast, once again, we have Jim Digby, the president of the Event Safety Alliance. We have Dr. Kevin Clazel from the University of Oklahoma, and we have Dax Cochran from Weather Ops, uh, and we are going to talk about trigger charts. So for those of you who have your event safety guide handy, this would be a good time for you to open up your book to chapter seven. Chapter seven is entitled Weather Preparedness, and if you look on page 85, you will see a fully completed trigger chart. Now, let me put in the usual lawyerly caveat here. The trigger chart on page 85 of the Event Safety Guide is a model. It is an exemplar. It does not mean that that particular trigger chart is gospel or that you must use everything just the way it is written. It is there to show you what a trigger chart looks like and some of the issues that may be worth considering for your event. For this event safety podcast, we're going to get to the point where you can create your own trigger chart that looks pretty and well organized like that. But first, you have to start with a blank piece of paper. And so, we have on this event safety podcast someone who started with the original blank piece of paper. So here's the setup. The Event Safety Alliance was born in the wake of the August 2011 Indiana State Fair stage roof collapse, which at least in part was related to insufficient planning for severe weather and insufficient means of dealing with weather that was arguably reasonably foreseeable in central Indiana in the summertime. In the aftermath of that particular tragedy, the Event Safety Alliance was born based on, at least significantly, the inspiration of our very own Jim Digby. I learned during the setup for this podcast that not only was Jim the inspiration for the Event Safety Alliance itself, but Jim was also one of the very first people to create a severe weather trigger chart. So, Jim Digby, how did you do it? You had a blank piece of paper. Then what? Uh, thanks, Steve. <laughs> uh, I guess the blank piece of paper was the hardest part. Um, we, uh, you know, the right after the aftermath of Indiana, I attended some training. Um, through another organization because there was nothing available for folks like me in the production side of business. And that training landed me on the doorstep at, uh, at the severe weather uh, uh, facility where Dr. Kevin Claysell was working. Um, and in fresh in my mind, thanks to your teachings and uh, the material presented by the other training institute uh, were risk assessments and uh, the idea of you know, uh, describing the things that could go wrong and what you would do, what the potential risk of those things going wrong could be and what you would do uh, in the face of that. That's, a, that's generally the, the basis for a risk assessment. 
so with that in mind and the desire to not have what happened in Indiana happen to me, because I was just like the folks in Indiana prior to that date, it could have happened to me exactly the same way. Um, I began to hypothesize the idea of a risk assessment for weather. Um, and, and that meant, you know, what, how will I be communicating the threat to, my, to the team? How will we be uh, determining what levels of weather threat uh, cause us to take action? How will that information be defendable? Uh, God forbid it would have to go to a court of law. Um, and, and what assets co potentially cause risk to human life that need to be considered actionable prior to the, to the strike of a weather event. Uh, so that, some of that was fairly easy. You know, the, the LED wall could be catastrophic if it falls on, on, on an audience member. The stage could be catastrophic if it falls on an audience member. Those things were obviously central focus points. So how do we get to what is it that the stage can withstand? Well, I'm not an expert in that. I'm not a mechanical engineer, a structural engineer. So one then can reach out to the structural engineer and find out what can the stage withstand. Uh, if you're in a fixed venue and you're flying PA or you're flying an LED wall or you're flying a lighting rig, you know, those components have safety ratings in them for load bearing purposes. And now what we do in addition to uh, considering those load bearing uh, capabilities is we have engineers look at the unit as a whole. What does the clamp on the video wall, what can it withstand? What does the entire video wall surface look like in, in a wind? What does it look like inside the shell of this particular venue? All of those uh, components are necessary in, in uh, determining uh, what actions need to take place and when. Um, an interesting early discovery was that the temporary pop-up tents, at, at this time when we were, I'll, I'll back up, at this time when we were trying to devise the best means for risk assessing to weather, um, one of the considerations was the pop-up tents that were on the pavilion of an amphitheater tour. And we could find no one that would tell you what a pop-up tent was re rated to withstand. Uh, there's no rating on the, there wasn't at that time any rating on the boxes or on the material and no engineer is going to tell you what, what to do with a pop-up tent because they're all made differently and, and sometimes of, of questionable reliability. So we, we determined for ourselves that a nice uh, threshold for the pop-up tents would be winds of 10 miles an hour. When we were going to see winds of 10 miles an hour, let's take the pop-up tents down. Let's avoid that risk altogether. When they take flight, they're dangerous. That's easy. Okay, so we look to a forecast from our weather uh, information providers uh, to determine what the incoming data is. What's the what's the approaching storm values? Is there lightning in that storm? Are there winds in excess of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles an hour? Um, is there hail? Uh, those then are the things that we're going to, those weather components are the things that we're going to respond to. Well, what needs to respond to at each of those thresholds? is the rest of that calculation. Uh, I'll call on Dr. Claisel now to, to kind of reflect on, on what he was sharing with us at the time uh, to get us thinking about how we can respond to predictable weather. Thanks, Jim, and thanks, Steve. The thing that concerned us back at the time when, when you had come to training is that there was a giant mismatch between the information that comes from the weather enterprise the information that you need boots on the ground at a stage or venue site. And that is when we say the word warning on the meteorology side, we have a specific definition for that, right? 58 miles per hour wind, one inch or greater hail and or a tornado. And of course, all of the bad things that can happen to a staging site can occur at wind speeds and hail sizes and rainfall and those kinds of things that are much less than that. So, in essence, the individuals who were out there were thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't get warned for this bad thing that happened. And that's because there was a misunderstanding between what a weather warning actually was and then how could we on the weather side begin to create 
new style of warnings, right? New triggers per se, so that they could populate this chart that, that you had started and started working on. And then now it's, it's for everybody, right? Every component of the show all the way to, you know, whether we're talking front of the house, lighting, sound people, video people, and patrons, right? The participants, the, the spectators. Um, and so extending what you talked about in terms of hail and high winds and lightning and now extending that to heat and, you know, the hydration protocols and, and those kinds of things. So uh, it's been quite an evolution of this particular trigger sh chart over the last uh, eight or nine years. Uh, and it's become quite sophisticated now. And, and I think that's exactly what we want it to do, right? We want to bring the structural engineering and meteorological expertise and put it in a way that we could put it in your hands to make great decisions on site. Let me see if I can piggyback off of what you just said, Kevin, because what I try to do is put things into paragraphs with headings. So from Jim, I heard that the first brainstorm issue was him talking to a structural engineer because he's not one. And Kevin, from you, I got that the structural engineering expertise has to be paired with the meteorological expertise in order to determine, essentially, when might a piece of equipment either blow over or fall down or do something that it's not supposed to do. Is that more or less right? Structural engineering plus meteorology? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And of course, structural engineers and meteorologists work very, very closely together, uh, both on the front end of design as well as on, unfortunately, the forensic end when something goes wrong. So let me now turn it to Dax Cochran. So Dax, when, when somebody contacts their weather ops meteorologist, what sort of information are they getting? Is it just you know, what they could look up at in the sky? Or what's the point of getting, you know, essentially a meteorologist on the phone? Why do that? Well, they can provide a um, really broad range of, of guidance. And I'll <clears throat> start the answer with the fact that your weather support service is going to be as good as the information you provide them. So if you can, before your event, provide the various triggers that you're using, uh, provide all of your concerns, how that may escalate to different types of concerns for one weather variable. Uh, wind, for example, looking at how it would impact a mobile stage and the rigging, as well as something like pop-up tents. Um, the more information that you're providing your weather service, the better information you're going to be getting back from them. Um, so that's going to come in the way of your regular forecasts you're getting each day. Those should be matched specifically to your trigger chart for that specific event. And then all the way down to the actual consulting when the forecaster is on the phone. If they have more guidance on what your concerns are, what uh, is making your event unique, what your concerns are with uh, maybe evacuation times or the shelter you're sending people to, the more information they have there, the more meaningful that information coming back to you is going to be so that you can make better decisions. So, Dax, let me take what you just said and now bring it full circle back to Jim. So, Jim, when you're talking with someone from WeatherOps or some other private weather consulting service, What's your concern? What, what's your end game? Are you just worried about the structural integrity of built structures on your site? Or is there some other ultimate litmus test of whether your site is safe or not during a weather incident? Well, I think, I, I think our first and primary concern is the safety of the humans, both inside the venue and uh, on and around the stage. And I think in those early days, when we, when we were kind of developing it as we went, we didn't have a promoter slash guest or a venue slash guest kind of handoff to who was going, who's getting the weather information, who's going to inform the audience, who's going to inform the artist, how are those pieces going to come together? Uh, so we kind of took the lead uh, in, in the early days because it was all new and we were the only ones really with this fresh idea to how to approach weather. So we would, I would come in and 
uh, sit with the promoter rep and sit with the venue and say, this is the, this is the format that we're looking at. We're getting our information from a very qualified source that uh, our weather information from a very qualified source that's endorsed by Lloyd's of London. Uh, we've got our, we've got our action responses based on information by either the vendor providing the materials or the engineer looking over the shows. And, and here's our chart. Uh, and, and our desire is that when weather threats of this nature come our way, we action to this chart. Uh, and we, our desire would be for you promoter or you venue host to be informing your audience as to why we're taking these actions uh, in response to wanting to have them safe. So that one of the very early challenges was not only compiling the data, but what to do with the data. How do we get that message out? Uh, and, and, and who gets that message out? Uh, so we just kind of took all that into our own hands from the beginning. The, one of the interesting confidence builders about the chart and about getting information from a weather service provider was we were in, uh, in, in, in Austria at a festival called Nova Rock, and we were getting our weather data faster, out of Nor faster and more accurately out of Norman, Oklahoma, then we were getting it from the Austrian Weather Service. And we were able to action the data we were getting from Norman, Oklahoma, whereas the information we were getting from the Austrian Weather Service was coming uh, just as it was too late. Uh, so that built confidence that, okay, so the incoming data about weather is good. Now are my action plans good? Now does the team understand what I expect, what we expect of them to do uh, when these trigger charts come? And are we always gonna be right? So as we talked about in the last podcast, this is really a framework and it's malleable and it's gonna change from day to day, but it is at least a place to start knowing that you're taking, it, taking the weather threat seriously, you're broadcasting that information to the team and those around you who are part and parcel of having the shared risk of the audience uh, and, and, and those who are on the stage. Uh, so then we just plugged in the gap. We just plugged in the data at that point in time and, and then developed the language to talk about it on the radio and, and in communications with promoters and venues. Kevin? Jim just said something that I don't want to lose track of, right? Malleable, flexible, right? This chart is not something that you take from someone else who has a similar location or show or whatever, and you Xerox it and you're done, right? That is not the intent of this trigger chart. The trigger chart is designed as a blank slate where you can bring the appropriate partners together to talk through the kinds of things that can happen at your show site. And even for the same venue, you may have a multitude of different trigger charts depending upon the type of event. Uh, we do that here, right? It's, we have a great football stadium, but we've got multiple trigger charts for that football stadium because football games are not the only thing that happened there, right? We could have graduation with, you know, elderly and, and limited mobility and, and those kinds of things. So you never want to take someone else's trigger chart and Xerox it, and now you have one, right? That's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is a planning exercise to understand what the risks are and how those risks intersect with your built environment, your structures, and your people. And, 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 your, and, safe, and your safe shelter as well. I mean, that's another consideration. I think one, sorry to interrupt, Steve, but one of the things we, we what might want to try to achieve here is identifying the different factors that come into play. What are the different data sets that come into play to build, build a chart? That's exactly right. And Kevin, I just wanted to hearken back to something that you said last week, which I thought made excellent sense, which is it's not just the venue and its circumstances that you need to be mindful about. It's the event taking place in that venue because venues have multiple purposes and therefore different vulnerabilities depending on the type of event. And different audiences with different, different states of mobility as well. That, that's right. So if I can, let's pivot this discussion to do at least a somewhat deep dive into why these categories. So just because I have my event safety guide right in front of me right now, so I'm looking at 
Chapter 7, Weather Preparedness, page 85, which is the sample trigger chart that we put into the event safety guide. I'm just going to read off the categories at the top of each column. And my question at the end of that line of, of reading that I'm about to do is, are these the only categories that one should consider? which is probably a rhetorical question, but I don't know where these categories came from. So is there some gospel to this list? So here I'm gonna read the list of columns appearing on page 85 of the event safety guide. And the columns are, starting on the far left, the threat. So the threat includes thunderstorms and lightning and non-severe hail and surface winds and other surface winds and still other surface winds. So the leftmost column is threat. Then alert method, and that's talking about radio alerts and how one communicates whatever the threat is. The third column, concourse, and what one should do with people who are on the concourse, I presume. The fourth column, FOH, front of house, so presumably how to protect people who are front of house. I'm guessing regardless of who those people are, whether they're workers or patrons or public safety officials. Next is a column, pyro. I presume that whoever made this particular trigger chart had some kind of pyrotechnics, but I'm guessing that if you don't have pyro at your show, you don't need this column but let's make sure that that's abundantly clear for listeners to this podcast. The next category after pyro is backline. Let's make sure everyone knows what backline is. I suspect everyone listening to this podcast does, but backline has different vulnerabilities because it's a pretty broad category. Next, video. Well, that may fall into the same category as pyro. Maybe you don't have video, and if you don't, or if your video wall is not especially vulnerable to weather, Maybe you don't need this category, or you don't need it the same way. After video, there's a column for audio, and I'm guessing that works the same way. After video and audio, there's lighting. And I guess that depends on exactly what kind of lighting you have and how it's hung and where it is in relation to other built structures and people. Next to last, the category is stage and talking about stage monitors and presumably the use of electrical power to those pieces of equipment. And finally, the last category on this sample trigger chart is catering, because we don't want people who have catering equipment to get hurt any more than anyone else. So having teed up that entire trigger chart, Jim Digby is raising his hand. Jim, what do you have to say about all this? This chart was made for a specific tour and for a specific reason for a specific kind of threat. And I can tell you specifically what it was. This was a Lincoln Park tour, an amphitheater summer shed tour outdoors. And it encapsulates things that were in our duty of care, our being Lincoln Park's production team, our duty of care. This does not address a weather trigger chart that the venue would have, for example. That's a different duty of care. So when referencing the chart you just referenced that's in the guide, contextually, that's about an amphitheater tour with a very specific set of things, actions happening around the amphitheater as relates to the artist coming in as a guest of a venue and the threats that the artist has the duty of care for, that the artist team has the duty of care for. That's a really important distinction because it's in a completely different equation for promoter or venue. Um, and one of the things that's not mentioned in there is what's the evacuation time? How do we get to determine what the evacuation time is? Does the evacuation time differ from a sold out show or a not sold out show? Does it differ from a country artist to a pop artist? Does it differ from a symphony to an urban act? Probably yes. Well, how do you get to that determination, what the evacuation time would be? Well, every time you have a show, the audience leaves. So we suggest you time every audience departure under normal circumstances. 
and then take the mean average time of those folks departing under normal circumstances and use that as the basis for how long it takes to evacuate your building to safe shelter. What is safe shelter? Kevin, I'm gonna to toss that to you. So safe shelter is going to be different for every single one of those weather parameters that you have down the left-hand side of the chart. And so, as Jim mentioned, you know, we've got, for example, you know, Trace Atkins or Lee Bryce on a stage in the middle of our football field. And so some of the things that are, are not on the column there are places like, you know, merchandising and souvenirs and concessions and ushers and ticket takers and so on. And for this evacuation problem, it's gonna be different for everyone, right? The concessions folks in our place can stay right where they are. Those are hardened facilities where shelter against whether it's lightning or high winds, they're gonna stay, you're gonna shelter in place means they don't have to move. For a field full of patrons in front of a stage, like you said, Jim, and, and this is a great practice to get into, we do it ourselves, time every time somebody leaves, right? I mean, every time anything is over, time it so that you know exactly how long that's going to take. And it's going to be different, right? You're right. It's going to be different for every group of people. It's going to be different for getting the artist safely off the stage. It's going to be different for getting the, uh, the ADA seating area evacuated. It is going to be different for the stand-up general admission versus the sit-down reserved seating. Every single one of those is going to have a different time associated with it. And those Shelter locations are going to have to be identified. For example, in our, our ADA uh, situation at our stadium, the shelter where we bring the ADA folks to is very close to where that seating is. In other words, you can think about things ahead of time, right? Don't think about the sheltering once you've got everybody in your venue and now you've got to deal with the logistics. Plan ahead, right? Know where your shelter spaces are against these various parameters like lightning and winds, and then arrange your seating and, and those things accordingly so that you can make most effective use of that time you have if you need to evacuate. I'm going to note for listeners to this podcast that even just in the course of these conversations, which are utterly unscripted, we have referenced the subject of our previous podcast about crowd management with Eric Stewart and our upcoming podcast on accessibility issues at live event sites. So notice how these things are a continuum of issues. You never actually finish with a, an issue and say, I'm done with that. You wipe your hands and say, fantastic, done, put a bow around it. Nope. Because every show is different and every crowd is different, you have to keep revisiting these issues. The questions may be largely the same, but the answers will change every time. That's one of the things that keeps us all employed. And an example of that may be that in some instances, the safest thing to do is to take the video wall to the ceiling and get it away from wind that way. And in other instances, that very same video wall, depending on the venue, may need to come to the deck or be disassembled. The same with the audio. You know, the audio might be out over the audience's head in some instances. And that solution is different from the solution if it's upstage a little bit and, and not in threat of the audience. Uh, the good news is that the, at least the team at DTN uh, has spent time on the ground coming to understand uh, what, what is actually happening. They're not just meteorologists sitting in front of a computer screen. They've made the journey. They've gotten out into the field and they can understand why we need to be flexible. They understand because they've seen it with their own two eyes, how to deliver the information to uh, the show folks, uh, the venue folks in a way that it's actionable for them. And they're able to be flexible with the trigger needs as well. So if today it's a 20 mile an hour wind and tomorrow it's a 30 mile an hour wind, that adjustment can be made on the fly with a little bit of pre-planning. That's, um, that's correct. One thing I'll add to that, since we started this back in 2012, a number of our forecasters have really monitored and supported a lot of events. So some of these guys are getting to the point where they've seen a lot of different things, a lot of scenarios and, and how customers 
um, you know, use the information that's coming to them. So they sharpen as, as we go along as well. They have more of an understanding of what it means if you need to bring down a video wall or if we have to evacuate, but uh, we've shuttled in all the festival goers, what a, what a big deal that can be. Uh, so they have, that, they have that level of understanding. And uh, one thing I wanted to, to touch on that I had a question about was for, a, for maybe an artist production's weather plan, you're obviously meeting, Jim can answer this, Kevin, you probably have experience with it too. If you're meeting with a venue and maybe different vendors are you are you reviewing their weather plans as well so that you're trying to you know make sure everybody is is on the same page with what my particular concerns may be versus the duty of care that a venue would have so that was just one question i had that i thought we could touch on yeah, yeah. I, I i've faced that um the the challenge is now that everybody is, well, that many are becoming more responsive to the need for action plans and, and weather data on the outdoor shows and uh, just safety in general. The, the bar is getting higher. Uh, there is a disparity of, I've got my weather information, I arrive and this temporary outdoor structure has its weather information on the backs of its stage and then the venue may have their weather information. Well. That's all very, very good. And, and what the, the conversation that needs to happen at that point in time in the morning before, th before a threat or the days leading up, if there's a potential for a threat, is, well, where do, we, where do we agree and who's making the call, which is another very serious concern. And, you know, I, I'm bound to some extent to make the call on the things that I have the duty of care about and the venue and the stage. Well, I, you know, I'm going to follow the lead of the staging guy more often than not. If, if, he's, if he's demonstrated that he's done his weather action plan, the engineering reports are in, all of that data is solid and good, and, and he may have a lower threshold, he or she may have a lower threshold than I have, I'm going to take the lower threshold as a precautionary measure. But at least we've got, we've got a, a reason to sit down at the table together and talk through what we're all thinking about this plan. And I think that conversation can be had. It can be notated that you agreed on these things and that a, a, a good lawyer like Steve can defend that in court, that we had reason to sit down at the table, we had reason to come to these conclusions, and this was the decision we made uh, it, it, on behalf of everyone's uh, safety. That's an, ideal, that's an ideal circumstance compared to where we were in 2011, where we weren't having those conversations and we couldn't agree on uh, whether or not it's a, an amount of rainfall or it's a wind gauge reading or it's lightning, we couldn't agree on any of those things. I think now in this day and age, we can all sit down at the table, three, four, five of us with our different weather action plans and come to an agreement for the day. I, I think it's important to note here that we're on this podcast, we're not experts because we know stuff. We are experts because we've screwed up stuff. <laughs> for um, <sure. laughs> and I can tell you how many times, you know, even on our own campus, right, with an association with a football game, the marching band has their stuff and they do one thing. And then the, the football teams and the officials, they do something else. And then the fans do something else. And then, you know, and it's total chaos. And that's the way it used to be, right? We didn't just hit the ground running with smart things. We learned the hard way from a lot of mistakes, right, along the way. And so we're trying to, I think, impart this, you know, not because we know stuff, but because we've screwed it up and we know what failure looks like, right? Uh, and in this, this enterprise, failure happens, right? And, and so you have to do everything you possibly can to, to avoid that. And what Jim is talking about with respect to getting all of the partners on board is something that used to not happen, but now it does, right? And so we've brought everybody's weather plans into alignment with everything we try to do with our venues so that we can have these meetings ahead of time to make sure that everybody's triggers are the same triggers so that we're not all doing something different and singing out of different hymn books. I think the other thing we learned in, in this curve to where we are today is that 
uh, and we heard this from our insurance uh, supporters for the Event Safety Alliance, is that some folks were taking the action plan as gospel and potentially using it as a reason for cancellation um, unnecessarily. The good news about what we're discussing here today and having the action plan and having the data input and having the conversation among the partners is, and, and, and having reliable weather information, truly reliable weather information in the forecast, not the now cast model, is more often than not, these, event, these events with respect to weather are postponements and not cancellation. We can see with pretty clear resolution that an event is a very short-lived event in some cases. There are some times the weather event's gonna just wash out the whole day, no question about it. But because we have this really good data, now we can say, if we shelter now, if we hunker down now, we safe all the equipment now, we cover stuff up with plastic, we unplug it, 30 minutes from now, that storm's gonna be passed, and 30 minutes from that, we will have no more lightning in the area, we can reopen the doors and start all over again. So th this is really about how do we keep the show up for the audience more than it is, these are the things you need to know to cancel a show. Well, these are the things you need to know to be prepared to restore the show immediately following uh, the event. And in fact, we've even acknowledged that in the early days, in, in our example today, there's no restore trigger chart. There needs to be as much information about the restore after the event has passed as there is uh, about get, preparing for the event. And that's something we hope to add in the second version of this weather dialogue. I can uh, attest to that. We like to think of ourselves as the show go guys when we can in the, in the weather support world. And I think we see um, more times than not, it's, all, it's not always doom and gloom. We, we have to cancel. A lot of the times these events uh, finish in a, in a very successful way where everybody had a good time and everybody goes home, even in the face of potential weather threats. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, whether uh, the weather information is good these days. And uh, when someone didn't have that sort of information before, they may not have known what to do and made the decision to, to cancel a show, whereas today you can navigate through that better. And if you take what Dax and, and Jim both just said, this experiential, you know, these the forecasters who have worked thousands of events and understand how lightning works and, you know, wanting to be show go, but also wanting to restore. I mean, we used to use this 30 minute on the back end after lightning, which was archaic, right? There's no meteorological relevance to waiting 30 minutes. I think it's like that same hour that my mom told me about, you know, getting into or out of the pool, right? You got to wait an hour before you eat or after you eat or something. I don't even remember now, right? But I know 30 minutes was always this hallmark of, okay, well, no matter what, if you did a lightning strike, you got to wait for 30 minutes. Well, the meteorological expertise that, that folks like DTN can bring to the table can actually assess whether that storm is even there to produce lightning anymore, right? If it's a pulse storm on one of these afternoon summer show sites, that storm could be gone 10 minutes later. And so we're ready to go back to work, get the show going again and not waiting these arbitrary time periods. So, so you know, Dax talking about this experience of the forecasters working with these events and understanding lightning and the weather for the region. And along with Jim, you know, now the trigger chart morphing into a return to play, return to show type of uh, set of triggers. I think those are all things that we can take advantage of going forward. There's one other issue that I'd like to touch on on today's podcast with regard to trigger charts. So in different aspects of this conversation, we've each referred to the idea that multiple parties need to have their own trigger charts even for the same events. And as I look back on the trigger chart on page 85 of the Event Safety Guide, it's a pretty wide range of issues that are subject to weather, whether it's, you know, concourse, front of house, pyro, catering. There's no one entity involved in an event production that's going to know the vulnerability to different weather phenomenon for each of these categories. So, Jim Digby, when you're bringing in a, a touring act, you're not going to know whether a certain wind condition is going to create a safety issue for the catering. 
because that's not your role. The house might know that, but the people in the best position to know will be the catering folks. And the people who are you know, dealing with lights or sound equipment, you may know that, but I bet the house is gonna know because they're the ones with the direct relationship with those particular vendors. And so one of the things that's important to me is that each entity that is involved in creating an event use their own knowledge and expertise, whether it's theirs or theirs through their various vendors and agents to determine what their vulnerabilities are. Because you do need to have your own trigger chart. I mean, Jim and I have had this conversation slash argument for years where because he's weather sensitive, he was willing to take on more responsibility for making show stop or show you know, restore decisions then frankly I thought was a good idea because he didn't have the authority to make those decisions therefore he shouldn't carry the responsibility for making them correctly and so my point simply is preparing for weather is a collaborative effort and it requires a collaboration by all the people who know what their vulnerabilities are and who know what resources are available to address those vulnerabilities. It's not one size fits all, and it's not one person is at the top of the chain overriding everyone else. This, I believe, is one of those situations where there are multiple key stakeholders who actually do have to talk to each other. Right, and and I, whether that's sorry. the advanced process or someplace else in, in the planning stage, this is something that has to be discussed just like you know whether they're green m&ms in the artist bowl or not yeah i would add that you know the cone of confidence as a reference uh, what i found myself doing that summer and subsequently is you know i would include the weather action matrix the trigger chart with my advanced details to the host and say hey this is what we're this is our our framework for safety with respect to weather and if we were being alerted by by our provider that that particular day and we remember we can start seeing that seeing some resolution on bad weather in in some cases as much as seven days out so if i got to three days and and it's still looking like geez when i play oklahoma it's going to be one of those days for weather i can be having that phone call and have had that phone call with the promoter for that show three days out to say hey it looks like we're going to be in the, in the stuff on your day. Can I see your weather chart? I'll show you mine. You show me yours. And let's start making a plan for what's the cutoff on this? Um, what's the cutoff on this uh, decision to even show up at the venue? Or what's the cutoff on the decision, you know, to not let the audience load in? So in that instance, in those types of instances where we're seeing the threats of weather in advance, um, we're able to talk it through before we even get there. This is not something that we're going to master today. Uh, in fact, we're all still mastering it, Steve. It's, it is constantly under review and evolution, and it's because of folks like Dax and folks like Dr. Claisel who are out there in the field, in the thick of the weather world in Oklahoma, uh, every time they experience a storm and an and, and action and action plan, they're refining it back to our industry, to our advantage and, and great, uh, great wealth. Yeah. And, and frankly, we are constantly reminded of how much while, you know, we can pat ourselves on the back and say, we're doing a great job. And I think we are. And I think the industry is much advanced from where it was when, you know, the Hoosier lottery grandstand stage fell down on, you know, August 13, 2011. But we also get reminders all the time how far there still is to go. I think that when we drop this podcast, it will be accompanied by a picture that we think is kind of funny, but also is a bit sad, where there was a warning announcement, uh, which reads, attention, weather event approaching with potential lightning, misspelled, but that's forgivable. The next part is less so, it read, check your weather app for updates. And we're really, trying, 
Boo is right, Jim. We're trying to get away from that. Having a plan is a lot better than advising people to check their weather app for updates. It reminds me of the radio DJ on stage in Indiana who said, we hope the storm will pass. Right. That still is painful to hear every time. Kev? Yeah, hope, hope is not a plan. We, we echo that all the time. That's, that's the message we preach. Um, and I think when you're dealing with apps, the one thing that we, we like to tell people is if you have a trigger chart and it's actionable, it's proactive, and it protects that APP, that's the app you need, right? You need to have a trigger chart that satisfies those three conditions, actionable, proactive, and protects. And so those are the kinds of things that, again, like you said, right, we don't have all of the answers. We're always going to see things that, wow, that didn't go as planned. So you have to go after the fact and, you know, hot wash and, and things like that. But, boy, don't you ever, ever put that trigger chart in ink, right? It will always need to be modified. It will always need to be edited, tweaked, et cetera. Uh, so no ink allowed on your trigger charts. I remember, I think yes. it was maybe the very first event safety summit. I remember the line being said that plans will not save you, planning will. Plans don't save you. <laughs> planning <laughs> will. <laughs> yeah. Yep, there is famous video of that. Um, and, and that's exactly right. So podcast listeners, um, here's your pitch to go to the Event Safety Alliance website for the following reasons. Um, one, you'll see the funny image that I just read to you. Two, uh, much more importantly, we're going to post a blank uh, weather decision trigger chart that is, it is one format. It is a blank template. So it is fillable by you. And the idea is that you will fill it with the issues that are relevant for your site, for your event. And this is something that you can keep using because each event will raise different risk issues. Um, and that's important. So there will be a blank template. You know, the left side will prompt you to consider various weather issues but you know the weather issues in Pennsylvania where Jim Digby is right now will be different than the weather issues where Kevin Clazel and Dax Cochran are in Oklahoma, which are in turn different than the issues that I have in Arizona where I am. So you always will have to use a new template, start fresh, whether you put it in pencil or type it out, but start a new one for each event. With that, um, let's quickly go around. Does anybody have any final words before I wrap up this particular event safety podcast? Yeah, I think one of the things that as you think about your individual trigger charts, uh, think in terms of time, not distance. Think in terms of minutes, not miles. And so when you're thinking about how long it takes you to evacuate Storms are always going to be moving at a certain speed, right? And that's where your meteorological expertise can really help you, right? Rather than telling you the storms are 20 miles out, it's going to be much more efficient to tell you the storms are 20 minutes out rather than 20 miles out. And that way you know more how to align the incoming weather with your evacuation plans. So I think that's sort of the next level of sophistication with the, with the trigger charts is always thinking in terms of minutes, not miles. Kevin, that's an excellent point. Dax Cochran, do you want to offer any parting words on behalf of weather ops? Yeah, I think when you're, you're thinking through generating your trigger chart, getting it filled out, you also need to be thinking about what type of weather uh, should we be expecting for this time of year, this location, similar to, to as you just said, Steve. And that data is available. You can get this data from the Weather Service website. You can get it from me, send me an email. Uh, but it's a really good idea just to look at what's happened historically and, and what to get a better sense of what you can anticipate. And Jim Digby. Uh, it's a daunting task. And as a production person, 
who got into the business not thinking about having to be a safety planner, it really feels out of my wheelhouse. And I know that it feels similar to my colleagues and peers that it's out of their wheelhouse as well. But given the right guidance and knowing that you've got phone of friends right here at ESA and in other locations, you can get to the solutions you need to get to. You can get to this trigger chart. Look, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And I'll remember the words of Harold Hansen at the Academy for Venue Safety and Security. Practice the mom. Practice planning for the maxim of maxims. What's the worst possible thing that could happen today? And the theory there is if you practice only and plan only for a rainstorm, then when a tornado comes, you're screwed. But if you practice for a tornado and a hurricane and a plan, I'm sorry, if you plan for a tornado and a hurricane and an airplane crashing onto the site all at the same time, then when it's a lightning storm, you've got it covered because you've overextended your learning capacity at that point in time. So it's daunting, but it can be done. And, I, and it's actually a tremendous weight off your shoulders once you've had the completed trigger chart out into circulation. Well, Jim, you, you have just essentially posed the fundamental question for all risk management, which is, what could go wrong? So if you start there, you will generally cover most of the risks, and you'll start on your way to figuring out how to mitigate those risks. Uh, with that, I think we have discussed weather trigger charts for today. Uh, let me conclude by reminding you to check the Event Safety Alliance website, uh, eventsafetyalliance.org, uh, not only for news about this and future podcasts, uh, but also to check out news about the Event Safety Summit taking place again this year at Rock Lidditz in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. Um, there may be some information that you want to look at. Uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks. There's a broad hint for you. Uh, when a lawyer tells you something and isn't charging you and isn't blaming you, that probably is a sign that this is a friendly piece of information. You should check out the Event Safety Alliance website during the month of July. Uh, there will be something you'll like. So uh, do that, and with that, I will thank uh, Dax Cochran from WeatherOps, Dr. Kevin Clazel from the University of Oklahoma, Jim Digby, president of the Event Safety Alliance, uh, behind the scenes, Jacob Warwick, making it all happen, and I am Steve Edelman. Uh, thanks very much for listening to this event safety podcast. We will drop another one soon. Until then, be safe out there.